0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, we're looking at verses 6 through 13 this morning. And we'll actually pick back up with um, verses 12 through the end of the chapter next week. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on those last few verses, but, but we will read them together this morning. And as we've made our way through this book, there's no denying the weightiness of the themes and the topics of of every passage that we've read. It's, It's as if eternity is hanging in the balance, as John's vision portrays the punishment of evil and the victory of the Lamb. And the symbolism that we see throughout increases this sense of the mystery while also highlighting the terrible and the glorious realities that they illustrate. There's symbols on on all sides here, and so our passage this morning reveals how the gospel provokes both terror and comfort. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for His help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Your Word. We thank you that doesn't passage, and for the challenge it is to preaching, Lord, in a culture that doesn't want to hear negative things that do, that wants to hear. Um, light and fluffy and encouraging and tickling thoughts lord we we come across passage after passage in revelation that does not allow us to do that it doesn't allow us to make um, light of the situation that we are in if we are apart from christ so lord let us take this passage seriously let us heed the warning that it gives And let us respond in obedience and let us hear um, this description in such a way that it would cause us to stand fast, Lord, and to proclaim your gospel to all who would listen. Lord, we want you to be glorified. We want sinners to repent and turn to you. And we recognize that that is only possible by your spirit. And so do a work through the preaching of your word in our own hearts, and cause us to be edified and equipped for the work that you call us to. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's read with me Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. Fear God. A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night Amen. This is God's holy word. Maybe you've heard of Pascal's wager before. I, uh, essentially Pascal states that humans wager bet their lives on whether or not God exists. Uh, you must wager whether He is or is not. You, you're, it's not something. It's not a bet that you can pass. Right? You have to wager. Pascal reasoned that people should risk believing because the consequences of being wrong are minor in comparison to rejecting the Christian God and being wrong. Now, I'll admit, the wager has problems logically and even theologically, but but I'm not going to get into that. I think there is a sense in which the angels in this passage are proposing a kind of wager. You can fear God and worship him, or you can continue to worship the beast. If you choose to remain in your sin, your state of misery and pain will only increase in eternity. And so if the gospel is true, then the consequences of rejecting it are terrifying and severe. And this passage warns of the final punishment for believers It also gives promises of the final reward for the saints. And so themes of judgment and peace, terror and comfort precede the second coming, which we'll see next week from verse 14, right? It says, then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. That's reflecting on the second coming of Christ. So just before that, just before Christ's return, you have these final announcements that are given to those who worship the beast, as well as to those who have repented and turned to the Lamb. And this is a future reality, all right? It's, it's presenting something that has not happened yet, and yet every time the, pre, uh, the true preaching of God's Word takes place, it should include these kinds of warnings and promises, Right? Un- unbelievers should heed these warnings as if it were the last opportunity for them to hear. And believers should take comfort in this promise even now before you're lying on your deathbed. And these are meant to help us to endure, to prepare us for that day. And so we don't take it lightly. If I could summarize it, I would say this, the endurance of the saints is supported by the terrifying reality of the alternative. And so the first section here, verses 6 through 8, we see this call to repent, a call to repent. This passage reminds us, first of all, of God's patience uh, towards those who dwell on the earth, not wishing that any of them should perish, but that all should reach repentance, as Peter says in his second epistle. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, according to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. But his character demands that they receive the just penalty for their sin. And so another angel flies overhead in verse six. Uh, it flies directly overhead, as, as our ESV translates it, literally in Greek that's mid-heaven. An angel is flying mid-heaven. And the last time this happened, uh, an angel flying in mid-heaven or flying directly overhead was pronouncing a woe upon those who dwell on the earth, trumpets. Those who were about to endure the last three trumpets, right? The judgments of those final trumpets were about to be declared. And so this angel comes and says, woe to those for whom these trumpets will be um, uh, declared over. So the context of this passage immediately points us to a message of wrath for those who dwell on the earth. It's a message of judgments, those who identify with the beast rather than the lamb. That's, that's how this phrase, those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers, it's always in reference to those who, who associate with the beast, not those who associate or identify themselves with the lamb. So speaking of unbelievers here. However, what is the angel declaring? it says he has an eternal gospel to proclaim. And so if this is a message of judgment, why is it called the gospel? Well, similarly, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that the aroma of Christ can be a fragrance of life, leading to life for those who are being saved, while at the same time, it can be a fragrance of death leading to death, from death to death for those who are perishing. And so the good news of this judgment is only heard and heeded by believers, right? It's good news for them. What fills them with gratitude, however, fills unbelievers with disgust. And so the angel calls people to fear God, to give him glory, and to worship their creator verse 7 describes, and maybe you wonder how this description can be called the eternal gospel when, when it's apparently missing some critical components of the gospel. There is only one gospel. There's only one gospel that this angel from heaven could be proclaiming to every nation, tribe, language, and people, but the description of the gospel is quite complex, right, in that it's got so many facets that we can look upon. It can't be truncated into a a nice slogan or a few simple propositions that we just repeat over and over again, right? Christ-centered preaching oftentimes reduces the gospel to a few slogans and simple propositions. I think it can be dangerous in that way when someone doesn't present the gospel according to this Note, you know, this formula that we have of the gospel in our minds, we judge that they've missed the mark, that they have not preached Christ. And I remember a fellow seminary student who listened to the sermon of one of our pastor professors. And he had a blog of his own, and he proceeded to then take this formula that he had found from a, you know, what might be called a discernment blogger. He took that formula and he applied it to the message that he had heard that Sunday from this pastor professor. And he wrote a blog about how he had not preached the gospel that Sunday, how he missed the mark because it didn't fit his gospel paradigm. Joel Beaky says, if the gospel is not preached the way we expect, we're unhappy. We assume that the gospel can be reduced to a few simple propositions, and we expect preachers to present them to us over and over again. If they don't, we conclude that they are not preaching the gospel. Yet in scripture, the same gospel is preached in many different ways. And so this verse is a case in point The gospel cannot be reduced to a slogan without truncating the fullness of the biblical teaching on the subject. And a pastor is still preaching the gospel even when he has not addressed every aspect of the gospel in a particular sermon. If you could do that, it would be the same sermon every Sunday. It'd be the same thing, and that's not what you find in God's word. You find many, uh, it's a multifaceted gospel. And so the angel declares an exhortation to the people, for the people to to turn to God, their maker. Hey, we could ask the questions, do you fear God or do you fear man? Do you give glory to the Lord or do you give glory to an idol? Do you worship the creator or the creature? These are the questions that are being asked here of those who hear this angel's proclamation And those who continue to worship the beast will face God's fierce wrath. And so this announcement is is not so much a warning of judgment to come in the future, but a statement that the final judgment has arrived, right? The hour of God's judgment has come. It says, because the hour of his judgment has come. This isn't a warning before his judgment is about to come or something like that. It's not before. It's because his judgment is here. This is a statement of fact that the final judgment has arrived. Next week, we'll, we'll see how the angels enact that judgment, and it indicates the, the conclusion of another cycle in the book of Revelation. We'll begin another cycle in chapter 15. But the end of, that, of this present cycle will be at the end of this chapter. And so this is followed by a second angel who then announces in verse 8 the fall of the worldly system of idolatry. And the fall of Babylon is described in further detail in chapters 17 and 18. Babylon is the anti-city. It's the counterfeit New Jerusalem. It's what Satan proposes to the world. Right? And at the time of John's writing, that was personified by Rome. Um, in fact, Rome was, was equated with Babylon, uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 13. And so just as Babylon had destroyed uh, the first temple and sent the Israelites into exile, so Rome had destroyed the second temple and scattered God's people throughout the region. And that means that, <clears throat> that Rome and every subsequent evil power would experience the same fate as Babylon. All right? They would become desolate forever. As the historical Babylon, and thus all who engaged in her mora- immorality would also be devastated. And so that's what's described here. Again, I- idolatry is represented here as sexual immorality, and we've talked about how that uh, it's using language here, and, and this is frequent in the prophets, it's frequent in apocalyptic literature as well. That that idolatry general. Idolatry is associated here with sexual immorality. It's portrayed in this very vivid form. The wickedness of, of all kinds of evil are summarized by one of the most prevalent and destructive sins. And the eternal shame or the internal shame and the external consequences of sexual promiscuity are nearly unmatched in scope. It is with good reason that Scripture oftentimes illustrates general sin in terms related to sexual immorality. Because all sin is equally worthy of condemnation, but few sins are as equally heinous to God's purposes for his people. Now, in saying that, true believers are are not perfectly pure at any point in this life. Remnants are cor- uh, of corruption abide in every part of man, which constantly wages war with the Spirit. But believers, strengthened the Spirit, are also being sanctified by Christ so that they heed this warning. We are enabled to mortify the flesh, to die unto sin, to live unto righteousness. Yet we're often weak, and we recognize that even our best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. And so the fruit of our struggle is not perfection, but it's exhausting, it's wearying labor, it's persevering throughout this life. And so, when the angel announces Babylon's fall, the saints rejoice. This is good news. Babylon is fallen. It reflects not only the end of her ever present temptation, but the vindication of God's supreme authority and power. It represents the end of the persecution of the church and of her constant struggle to remain pure in the face of evil. And so that's the good news of judgment for the believer, that everything that is evil, everything that stands opposed to God, it will be devastated, will be destroyed. And so the temporal destruction of Babylon leads to the eternal torment of all who worship the beast. And that's what's described, and that's what maybe the hardest part of this passage, is reading verses 9 through 11, and this warning of torment. All right, so we've seen the call to repent in verses 6 through 8, and now we see a warning of torment in verses 9 through 11. No doubt this passage is difficult to read. Right? The description of God's fierce wrath is, is almost unbearable here. It's not hard to comprehend why so many televangelists just avoid passages like this altogether. Many think motivation should only come from uplifting of encouragement. But in reality, motivations are diverse. All right, we can be driven by fear as much as joy. And threats of pain can be just as powerful as promises of reward. And so we shouldn't minimize the power of a passage like this. We should take it to heart. We shouldn't think that it's not for us, that it's only for others. This is a warning to heed. And in fact, the only ones who will heed this warning are true believers so this is a message for you it's not a message to take lightly a third angel warns about the consequences of worshiping the beast and its image and receiving its mark and that leads to several consequences that are described in verse 10 first of all the drinking drinking the wine of god's wrath from the cup of his anger and then being tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the angels and the Lamb. And this torment, it says in verse 11, endures forever, day and night, for all who worship the beast, its image, and receive the mark. So it brackets, the verse 9 and 11 are bracketed with that description of worshiping the beast, its image, and its mark. So it's clearly describing those who have rejected the gospel, and it's, it's talking about unbelievers who worship the beast, and it's a description of how they will share in the fate of the beast. We'll see that very clearly in chapter 20, that, that they're cast into the lake of fire. And so we begin, as we do in, in, in reading Revelation with every passage, an assumption that this is symbolic language. And so the cup of wrath, the fire, the sulfur, all represent something. And so some scholars suggest that this should, not be, this should, this should only be taken spiritually, not physically. Right? Because it's symbolic torment. We shouldn't take it literally here. And in that sense, they're saying it's not a physical torment. But symbols are not limited to spiritual realities. We've seen this all throughout Revelation. Right? The beast himself is a symbol of evil state powers, and the false prophet is any instrument that promotes the counterfeit worship of the state. And those are physical entities, right? They're not necessarily tied to a specific individual, but they're physical in nature. What is being revealed to John are those, who, uh, and to those who read uh, Revelation with understanding are the principles and patterns by which evil operates, both physically and spiritually, and even how things take place in heaven. So what does the torment of fire and sulfur represent? Well, by all indications, they represent an extreme amount of physical, spiritual, and psychological suffering forever. Uh, Their physical pain is intensified by a relentless Restlessness, as Dennis Johnson describes this. They will experience no rest. Torment is is always used in reference to conscious suffering. The Bible leaves no room for annihilationism, the idea that uh, that the torment of the wicked will eventually end. No, it talks about it being an ongoing thing. Day and night forever in the place where the worm never dies. And so, think about this. There is a bodily resurrection of all unbelievers who had died before they are thrown into the lake of fire in chapter 20. We're going to see that when we get to Revelation 20, verses 13 through 15. A a bodily resurrection of all unresurrected Likewise, believers who have died prior to the second coming will be reunited, will be resurrected, uh, reunited with the resurrected bodies. That's described in chapter 20 as well, verse 5. And so if there's no bodily resurrection, if that were not true, then we might assume that the pains of hell are merely spiritual or psychological because your body is still in the grave or it's, it's, it's rotting, it's, you're, you're no longer associated with your body. But before the judgment, there's a bodily resurrection, and that's, that's very clear throughout Scripture, So why would there be a bodily resurrection at the end of the age if heaven and hell do not involve our physical senses? Christ's own resurrection, which was physical, serves as a model and as the first fruits of the resurrection at the end of this age. So we should assume the same kind of experience, right? a physical resurrection. Sin is committed against an infinitely holy God, and so justice demands infinite Punishment. And the fact that God's wrath cannot be exhausted is a message for everyone. Now, this is the misery that sin ultimately brings. It is the eternal separation from God's comforting presence and the experience of torments in hell in both soul and body. And that doesn't mean that the wicked are separated from God's presence altogether. In fact, R.C. Sproul says something shocking. He says, we need to realize that those who are in hell desire nothing more than the absence of God. They didn't want to be in God's presence during their earthly lives. They certainly don't want him near when they're in hell. The worst thing about hell is the presence of God there. And so this warning in scripture Is proof of God's patience. This warning that He is telling you now, so that you would heed this warning, is proof of His patience towards you. Until Christ returns, we can hope and we can pray for even the most wicked sinner to repent. And this is a time to love our enemies, to pray for them. It's a time to warn everyone of the judgment that is coming and not to take it lightly not to dilute the message because God's wrath is not going to be diluted as it's poured out upon them. They're going to experience the full weight of his wrath if they do not repent. And once the day of judgment arrives, it'll be too late to repent. And so God will be glorified both in the display of his mercy and his justice, as Paul says in Romans chapter nine. And see, the wicked will drink the cup of God's wrath undiluted. They'll drink it in full, according to Psalm 75, verse 8. They will never experience true peace. They will remain in shame and utter darkness forever, according to Jude 13. And Israel was given the cup to drink in Isaiah 51, verse 17, but God promised to remove the cup from their hands. And he did this at the appointed time by sending his son to drink it for them. Right, True rest is only found through Jesus, who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And Jesus Christ endured the, the restless night of Gethsemane as he staggered before the thought of drinking the cup of his father's wrath. And he asked him to remove the cup if there were any other way. But he ultimately submitted, right? he submitted to the will of his father willingly and for those who turn to christ in faith they will not drink a single taste of the wine of god's wrath all right jesus consumes every last drop he did it when he died upon the cross when he cried out it is finished And so in his death, Christ defeated sin and he bore the full weight of God's wrath on behalf of all who place their faith in him. And so turn to him while he's still available. Let's pray.